I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. In February 2022, 4,000 pairs of training shoes were stolen from a lorry in Scotland. It was nicknamed the Great Trainer Robbery and the haul was worth £400,000. The lorry had been targeted. The thieves knew that inside were loads of sneakers. Nike sneakers. No brand quite says modernity like Nike. The shoes are unconscionably desirable and at the top of the range command enormous prices. If you've got more money than sense, you could invest in a pair of Louis Vuitton Nike Green Air sneakers for a cool 6,000 US dollars. The rebel spirit and the courage that Phil Knight had reinvent marketing, but I want nothing to do with marketing as I can see it in the world today. Nike has become an incredible triumph of branding. Last year, the company sold more than 780 million pairs, and they've been flogging their supposed sports shoes since 1964, selling more footwear than any other brand, and bringing in double the revenue of their nearest rivals, Adidas. Even the vice presidents all wanted to get a little bit of a peek in or a, a glance at Michael Jordan. <laughs> and so there would be a little bit extra traffic going by the boardroom where there's a meeting going on. <laughs> and they'd peek in and, you know, pretend like they weren't looking, but they really wanted to get a glimpse. The company's boss and the man who started the whole thing, Phil Knight, was ranked 17th richest man in the world by Forbes magazine in 2023 and his personal wealth is estimated at 41.5 billion US dollars. But could you pick him out at a lineup? Unlike many of today's mega-rich CEOs, he's no celebrity and has never wanted to be. But his vision has driven Nike to be part of a lifestyle revolution, where we all feel qualified to wear sports gear, even if we're a wheezing couch potato. So who is this Phil Knight? And how did he build a business that last year generated a worldwide revenue of over 46 billion US dollars? Phil Knight came down at the employee store and was seeking me out. And I, I remember this very clearly. I heard I was in the back and I heard him say, I want to come and meet my new employee. And I heard his voice and I went and hid in the back storage room because I was so intimidated. It was like meeting a king, you know, it was like he was the he was the everything around there. He was a celebrity. And so it was funny. So I finally came out and, of course, met him and shook his hand and, you know, decided to come out of my shell because I was about to be hired by this man. <laughs> That's Elizabeth Manning, who was King Phil Knight's assistant at Nike. She worked for years at the beating heart of their HQ in the oddly named town of Beaverton. Nice Beaverton is actually a suburb of the world's most achingly liberal city, Portland, in the west coast state of Oregon. Nike's employees claim Phil Knight put Oregon on the map, but if you still can't find it, that's north of California, but below Canada somewhere. Yes, he was like a king, but when you really get to know him and you really see the person he is the most humble servant in my day when i met him he was so humble and so genuine 
so kind. I was even more blown away and I, I just loved him even more because that's the kind of person that is a true leader in my eyes. Celebrities have this status that it, they're untouchable, but Phil was very available and very open and very authentic. And every morning when I would greet him, I was always there before he was. He'd always come a little bit later for his meetings. I would get the whoever was meeting him in the meetings. You know, I met Michael Jordan and Bob Costas and Tiger Woods and Andre Agassi, Mia Hamm, like all these people would come through for meetings. You you don't get to the boardroom without passing by me. I would get these guys coffee and I would greet them and talk with them a little bit, waiting for Phil. And every morning he he would come in and he would bow. He has a very strong Japanese background because Nisho EY was the company that finally invested in, in him. And he had a difficult time getting funded in the beginning. He, he just took on that, the Japanese way of honoring and acknowledging respect. And so he'd come in and he would literally bow and look me in the eye and say, good morning. And it was genuine. No matter how rushed his schedule was, he took his time to do that. Born in 1938 in Portland, his early years were dominated by the Pacific War with Japan. I can't help wondering what Dad, a Republican politician and newspaper owner, would have thought about young Philip's Japanese custom of bowing. He was reputedly a loving but stern father who refused to give Phil a summer job on his paper. Undeterred, young Phil went to the rival, the Oregonian, where he worked the morning shift tabulating sports scores and every morning ran seven miles home. His love of running would get him places. Phil Knight was an athlete at the University of Oregon, a, a mid-distance runner. Here's Ken Goh, who's been a sports reporter for 43 years on that same paper, The Oregonian. He ran for Bill Bowerman, who was a longtime athletics coach at Oregon, very successful as a coach, but also a little bit of a renaissance man and a, a mad genius. And uh, he did not like the quality of running shoes that his runners were using, so he dabbled with making his own. Uh, the famous story is that uh, he used his wife's waffle iron to uh, design uh, the bottom of the shoe to, in a way to cushion the impact uh, on their feet and legs and hopefully to reduce injury and uh, make a, also make lighter shoes uh, so better for competition. And uh, Knight, as one of his athletes, uh, went on to get a business degree, uh, advanced business degree at Stanford. He ended up partnering with Bowerman, uh, who, who had these running shoes and, and was hand making them for his athletes and, and thought this concept would work well if someone could mass produce them and market them. And so that's sort of how Nike was founded. The 1960s running shoe market was totally dominated by the German companies Adidas and Puma. But Phil Knight believed they couldn't hold on to such a big slice of the market. We basically have these feuding brothers coming off World War II who inherit their father's shoe factory, who before the war had been tinkering around with making athletic shoes and then coming off the war <laughs> um, have a falling out. And one brother, Adi Dossler, founds Adidas and the other brother picks up and moves across the river in Herzogenrock and founds Puma. Rudy Dossler. And um, to this day, the family companies are feuding and have a, a, a really cutthroat rivalry. Um, but that's where, you know, that competitiveness is where you saw a lot of innovation coming out of 
the athletic shoe world. Um, and it's, it's only later that you get other companies in Asia and later on in the United States um, starting to innovate and develop new shoes for people who play sports. And then, you know, making those shoes um, specific to the sports that you're playing them in. So, for example, women who are playing sports would often wear like nursing shoes um, because a lot of these companies were by men for men and they weren't thinking about women as being athletes. And so women had to find something that was pliable, but also a little bit sturdy to play sports. In, and that ended up being the shoes that nurses wore. <laughs> Victoria Jackson is assistant professor of history and a sports historian at Arizona State University and a former 10,000 meters U.S. national champion. As a professional athlete, she was sponsored by Nike. You know, the company is coming out of a paper that Phil Knight wrote in graduate school at Stanford Business School. So he's, he, he goes to the University of Oregon and he runs for Bill Bowerman and then he's in business school at Stanford and he writes a paper about something that he finds to be fascinating, which is Japan's entry into athletic shoes and running shoes in particular. And he wonders if Japan could do the same thing with running shoes and athletic shoes that they had done with cameras. Phil Knight's paper was titled, Can Japanese Sports Shoes Do to German Sports Shoes What Japanese Cameras Did to German Cameras? In 1962, after he graduated, Knight took off on a round-the-world trip. In Kobe, Japan, he found what he had been searching for, a fantastic running shoe. The Tiger brand by Onitsuka was so well made and such good value that he rang up the company, convinced them to meet him and negotiated the distribution rights for the whole western side of the US. When Knight got back home and showed Bowerman the shoe, he was impressed enough to put up some of his own money and go into partnership. Bowerman was key, as Matt Kaspari, former leader of the innovation team at Nike, explains. He was probably the, the top track coach in the world as a co-founder so i think that piece of it is very interesting and it's a very uh novel asset that nike had very early on that you know other people who may have thought about oh, i should make a better running shoe uh, didn't have bill bowerman and and he he really was an innovator he was always creating new shoes uh taking running shoes apart making them better trying to make them lighter and a lot of the ideas he came up with, um, the team would bring back to the Japanese manufacturers and they would uh, implement those improvements and create better products. So um, I, th I think Phil Knight was able to bring together some really interesting insights into the market uh, at a macro level of, of you know, where manufacturing could happen, but also attract uh, a world-class co-founder to help them build the business. Bowerman and Knight called their new import company Blue Ribbon and started by selling their Japanese-made shoes out of the back of a car at race meetings. They soon had a shop in Portland. There's a lot of kind of mixing of ideas between Nike and Onitsuka. There's a sharing of technology and ideas. So it's hard to draw lines around who owned what. <laughs> but eventually... Um, Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman and the folks in this Blue Ribbon Sports Company realized they'd rather what they'd rather do is stop importing Onitsuka shoes and entirely make their own and launch their own company, which they eventually end up calling Nike. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of kind of mistakes made along the way. Um, and it's it's not like they have a lot of base 
seed funding. So they're struggling financially too because they don't start off with a large pot of money to take risks. The relationship with their Japanese partners broke up, partly because of disagreements over what rights Nike had been granted over the distribution of the Japanese-made shoes. It really had to do with fear around losing the distribution contract, the ability to continue to sell this this product. There were other distributors in the U.S. that that wanted to sell these products. Um, I, I think Phil Knight was was very worried that they wouldn't be able to continue the the business because um, they were totally dependent uh, on this other company. And I, I believe the other company even at, at one point tried to to purchase Blue Ribbon Sports, and and Phil Knight did not want to sell. So really, he was forced into creating his his own brand. I, I think if those dynamics with with the, this this other Japanese company. Um, hadn't played out the way they did, um, he probably would have just kept on distributing their their sneakers and we wouldn't have had uh, Nike. So I think just this kind of threat to Blue Ribbon Sports forced them to go create their own product, um, create their own brand. And yeah, I guess the rest is, is history. Matt Kaspari. Knight and Bowerman moved from importers to manufacturers in 1971. They renamed Blue Ribbon Nike after the winged Greek goddess of victory and commissioned local graphic designer Carolyn Davidson to design a logo for a fee of $35. When Knight saw what she'd come up with, he wasn't very impressed, but said he thought it might grow on him. Her swoosh tick is now one of the most recognisable and iconic brand logos in history. Many years later, Knight recognised the importance of that logo and gave Carolyn Davidson shares in Nike. I'm Rod Little. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Nike was what we call today a, a bootstrapped company, meaning uh, they, they did not raise uh, venture capital. There really wasn't a venture capital industry um, available to them. Uh, they really had to self-finance the business, um, slowly build it over years and years and years. But I think from the investing standpoint, it gets a lot more interesting when when Phil Knight actually created his his own brand, which was Nike. And that took away the power that the manufacturers had over the company. They were able to work with many different manufacturers uh, and, and really kind of more create their own destiny. They design their own products, build their own brand. I think that gets to be a much more interesting and bigger idea. So I actually think if you look back at the Nike story, the very early years of Blue Ribbon Sports, um, a solid business, but you know one that struggled and had lots of ups and downs. And I think the the, the, the really interesting point was when they actually launched their own brand and created Nike that that unlocks this this whole other opportunity and scale potential that that obviously um, was was wildly successful. The 1960s and 1970s um, in the United States, there's um, this this kind of phenomenon emerging of people both recognizing the value of more fitness um, and also kind of a, a, a coolness is layered on top of going out and running with others in public. Um, there's a culture of saying that this is, you know, the, the activity that anyone can pick up and do because all you need is a pair of shoes. Um, and there's kind of a celebration of a democratic quality of, of you know, this sport too. But also, um, you know, socioeconomic class really plays a role here. 
in the types of communities that are safe to run in and also the types of labor that are performed by people during a workday. Like it's a certain class of people who have the energy <laughs> and capacity to go for a nice jog after you know work and that work is typically sitting at a desk all day rather than performing manual labor or public service you know on your feet all day something like that and then of course um you know it became much more clear to an american public after 2020 that it is not safe for african americans for example and other minoritized communities in the united states to run anywhere and take to the streets anywhere in the united states because your presence alone in public places can be interpreted as a threat by people who don't think you belong where you are so that said <laughs> um there's there's just a widespread culture boom around you know getting out with your friends and and running and and that's a good thing and you know smoking is still a very popular cultural pastime by the 1960s, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. And so this is a good kind of antidote to that. You know, this has a cool factor and that that coolness factor is kind of emerging out of a sleepy college town, Eugene, Oregon, by the early 1970s. Knight and Bowerman caught on to the boom in jogging and fitness, but they also understood how to use athletes as marketing tools. Victoria Jackson again can't pay college athletes and you can't give free shoes directly to college athletes either. So the way we can do this is to sign the coaches and then those coaches can run clinics and they, you know, part of the deal of the coach running the clinic is we pay them and we give them a bunch of shoes and then we don't tell them they have to have their athletes wear the shoes. But, you know, if they're getting all this free merch, their athletes are probably going to be wearing the shoes. And the shoes we're making are good, so the athletes are going to want to wear them too. And so the first coach they sign on to this is another kind of <laughs> uh, cowboy, Jerry Tarkanian, the coach of UNLV. And they immediately start signing many, many coaches. The Duke coach at the time, Bill Foster, um, had played in the NCAA tournament championship and finished runner-up the year prior. Um, they had a preseason ranking of number one. This is all going down in 1977. And what happens in 1978 is another kind of opportunity seen in a crisis, which is that news media outlets start reporting on this and they're writing about it in a way that suggests some sort of corrupting element happening and oh you know this is seems to be in a gray area and it might be a violation of amateurism but no this is great advertising and sure enough they end up signing a ton more coaches because of the news media attention to it by 1979 on the cover of sports illustrated larry bird the legendary boston celtics player later on in his life is on the cover playing for indiana state in the NCAA tournament and he's wearing Nike basketball shoes. And it was an attorney at the University of Miami who had the idea and asked if they could have an, a total athletic department deal so that every single sports team, men and women, got Nike shoes and Nike apparel. And Nike said yes. It would have been a very different story had Nike said no because that moment is really where we see a long-term genius of Nike because to this day, the majority of American college sports programs 
have institution-wide, or at least most of their major sports, are Nike-sponsored sports teams. There's a phrase uh, attributed to Phil Knight that, that you hear a lot at Nike, which is always listen to the voice of the athlete. And the, the building I worked in on Nike's campus was, was their innovation building. Uh, it had the kind of advanced R&D labs. We had uh, ability to test new materials that could end up in uh, different products. We had the Nike Sports Research Lab in there. And when you walk into this, this large building uh, in the lobby there, uh, going several stories up, you see these, these huge words um, of always listen to the voice of the athlete. So you really do see it every day as you you walk into the building. And for, for Nike, the, the athlete is their customer. They actually say that, you know, if you have a body, uh, you're an athlete. Uh, everyone's an athlete. Um, I think it's a lesson you hear as an entrepreneur. Uh, get out there, you know, talk to people, um, really understand the problem that you're solving. Uh, but but at Nike, I really do think you see the, the, the teams living that every day. Uh, they were really thinking about how do you make better running shoes? Um, so they were literally speaking with other athletes, um, understanding the, the problems. And it really was around creating lighter weight shoes, uh, adding more cushioning, you know, creating performance benefit for their athletes. Um, so I'd say for, for entrepreneurs, um, you know, get, get out there into the field, you know, deeply understand the problems that your customer has, you know, truly listen to them. Um, I think that's an important lesson and, and it's a lot of the secret of Nike's success. I'm Rod Little. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Phil Knight, the man behind Nike. Radio. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, host of Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I've been interviewing people who have achieved huge things in life and uncovering how they keep it together and how they survive the struggle to success. You can listen to all of my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or whichever podcast you prefer. Just search Nick Brax, Soul Trader. When you finish binging all of my shows, be sure to check out the rest of the Disrupt Podcast Library, The Business Lounge, The Next Shift, Global Disruptors, The Advisory Board, and Conscious Capital. Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or just simply want to improve yourself. Disrupt Podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. He had a lot on his plate, but his demeanor never seemed to show it. He always had a peacefulness. Starting with shoes out of the back of his trunk with Bill Bowerman at an athletic meet right with waffle shoes made from a waffle iron yeah it was liberating but at times a little bit terrifying we also can't hold someone like phil knight to 2023 standards when we're evaluating actions and decisions made in the past that he was also a product of his time 
hey, Phil has some extra hours from his jet rental. Do you want to take them and go bring some friends along? And so I'd, and we would go and fly around. And <laughs> Steve Bentz spent more than 45 years at Nike. The former Oregon University athlete was coached by Bill Bowerman and joined the company in 1977. 1984 was a huge turning point for us. Yeah, that's for sure. The brand was born 76. 1980, there was a boycott in Russia. And 1984, you know, the Olympics were in Los Angeles in our home country, you know, just a thousand miles away from Beaverton, you know, where Nike was headquartered. And uh, through the Olympics in uh, 84 is when people really got to know Nike. But going into the 1984 Olympics, Nike asked, what does it take, you know, for Nike to be an official sponsor of the 1984 Olympics. And they threw out a number, you know, millions of dollars. And, you know, you'd be just the same as toothpaste or sunglasses, you know, who are also uh, McDonald's, who are also uh, sponsors. But uh, Nike decided, or we decided at the time, uh, we didn't want to spend that amount of money just to put a marking on on the shoe boxes, you know, that we were official sponsors. So we went up and we did a campaign. Uh, We had our first television commercial. We love LA. We rented out sides of buildings, which are huge pictures of our athletes at the time uh, and so forth. So after the Olympics were over, they asked the general public, uh, who was the national sponsor for the Olympics? People thought Nike was like 60, 70% of people thought Nike was, but we weren't. You know, we just took that money and celebrated our athletes and communicated it during the Olympics in a different way. Scott Bedbury was director of advertising at Nike from 1987 to 1994. He had a baptism of fire. He told me how worried he was about this commercial uh, for back to school in 1988, which was really everything for Nike back then. It was probably 65% of profits in like a six-week period. And he said, whatever you do, make sure it works. And I tried. I mean, I was down in the edit studios in L.A. with Dan and David for two days, two nights, And it was like putting lipstick on a pig, but we had nothing else to show 800 Nike sales reps for the annual conference in Palm Springs in December of 87. So the applause was strong, but it was not anything transformational. And it surely didn't help us compete with Adidas. I mean, excuse me, with with Reebok. I mean, Adidas was five times larger than Nike at that point. But we would actually surpass them three years later, in, in part, I would say, significantly because of that repositioning. So we were huddled backstage, Phil and myself and Tom Clark, who was head of footwear, and all the Nike reps were heading out the exits, going to the bar. This was in the evening. It was like the last thing of the day. Knight looked at me, and I can tell he wasn't happy. Um, he hadn't seen the final cut because we were down to the down to the wire. I think they brought in a, a beta tape in uh, three-quarter-inch tape two hours before that presentation I made. And he just looked at me, and he said, so what do you think and uh i said i I think we can do better he said yeah i agree and i said well what do you think we should do and he said that mr bedbury is what i hired you to do and then he turned and walked away (laughs) so my my honeymoon at nike was precisely 11 days um so really it was sort of you know out of disruption you know innovation often flows and that was a chance to really um, grab the brand literally by both horns, if you will, and try and redirect it. So when they did pitch the campaign, I was the only Nike person in the room. It was middle of January, I think, 88. Yeah, it's an agency that does not like to be told what to do. 
So I made it a, a law from that point on, every brief to the ad agency was no more than one page, as was that one. And they said, we heard you, we heard you, we heard you. We're not going to lecture anybody. We're not going to, you know, try and convince anybody to take up distance running. So we, so we have this idea. <clears throat> All we have to do is remind people that they know what to do. And with that, uh, Riswald stands up. He has a stack of foam core and he, he drops the, the cover one down and the three words, just fuck it. And then I looked at it and I said, very funny. And he said, obviously we can't say that, but we can say this. And he let that foam core fall to the table and behind it, the same type of font with the swoosh underneath it was just do it. Now, to be honest, it was miles better than the first option, but until they started showing what you could do with that, and I think they showed me 15 storyboards for 30-second commercials, and I had a budget for maybe one or two. We ended up producing eight because it was the diversity of that campaign that made the brand more diverse. Um, and then I met again with the sales reps in August, uh, excuse me, July of 88, and uh, they loved it. It was like a five-minute standing ovation. That, and they were so proud that Nike had found a way to turn the corner and actually have a voice that was completely different. Scott Bedbury. So what's the Phil Knight style of management? He wants disagreement. He thrives on disagreement. He th thrives on conflict. In the early days, he had a group which he called the butt faces. But they would get together at least twice a year, and uh, it'd be two or three days. The alcohol was involved, but they they would have the topics, and uh, Phil would would raise the topic. You know, he'd sometimes be controversial to throw out what the topic is, and then he just watch everybody argue, you know, and point fingers and blame each other and stuff. That they were doing it, and uh, they they loved each other. They wanted to work together, but it, it was through that process of. Uh, conflict and disagreement that eventually almost a resolution or a decision or a solution just, just kind of uh, evolved. And sometimes, you know, Phil would have to make the call at the end to make it obvious, like, okay, time to stop. But he wanted that process to uh, play out. And he also loves to just sit back and watch it happen. He doesn't want to get in the middle of it, you know, but, but he will uh, eventually uh, bring it to a close. When we're at our best uh, and we have these meetings, the rule is, you know, uh, leave your ego at the door, leave your job title at the door. Everybody in the room is an equal, you know, and uh, and you have to be kind of aware if some people like me, you know, is a little introverted and doesn't want to get into the fight uh, to draw opinions out. You know, you, you'll go out of your way to, to, to include somebody into that conversation. You know, sometimes it's uh, it's very hierarchical and, and that's not what you want in a company like Nike, who's, we pride ourselves on creativity and innovation. And uh, it takes a lot of brains to do that. And what was great about Phil is he gave his employees all the rope you needed. You know, he was one of those who would push you in the deep end of a swimming pool because he had no time to meddle. He didn't like meddling. He had been meddling in all of these areas because he'd lost all these executives and that was the last time he ever really got involved, you know, trying to help make a creative decision. But in the end, he just looked at me and he said, so what do you think? And I said, I think we got to go. This is great. Let's roll. And that was just the way Phil was. Uh, he, he's, he's a really hard guy to describe, but I can put it this way. He wasn't one to lay a ton of praise on anyone, nor was he ever one to really chastise somebody. 
you know, or to be in any way, you know, mean or mean spirited. He he had an incredible amount of character, an incredible amount of empathy. He was also a bit shy, didn't like speaking much. I mean, for example, when we did the first Nike commercial for the Super Bowl, which is a big deal in the States, this was 91, I think, uh, there was a poll that was done every year by USA Today, and they would um, gauge among viewers which was the best commercial out of the 50 or 60 or whatever, and we won it that first time. So we were like one for one. So Knight walked by my office the next morning, or two days later, I guess it was, and he just leaned in and he said, hey, that Super Bowl spot. And I go, yeah. He said, not bad, and then walked away. <laughs> so and I knew that was about the greatest compliment I would ever get from Phil. Phil Knight talks a lot about uh, fail fast, um, you know, saying, you know, if if I was going to fail, um, I'm going to fail quickly so that I have the time to you know, implement these lessons. Um, and I, I think when when I think about innovation and, and new product development, um, you know, running what we'd call kind of the, the, the killer experiment early and figuring out, you know, does this work or not? And, and if it doesn't, uh, that's okay. Let's let's move on to the next thing. I, I think that's part of being an entrepreneur. It's part of innovating. Um, is that these these projects all have risk. A lot of them don't work. Uh, and the faster you can get to that conclusion, uh, the better. He's a risk taker, and a, a lot of people admire him for that. Um, he's not afraid to to push all his chips in. And I I don't know this from firsthand experience, but I read his book Shoe Dog, which is uh, fascinating, and it's amazing. Um, how many times early in Nike's development into what it is now that he risked everything and they they weren't slam dunks. They, I mean, he took major, major gambles and um, his willingness to do that is is what made him successful. And I, I think the company itself now is undergoing a bit of a a sea change. A lot of the people who founded it, Knight, Knight has stepped away from day-to-day um, -day operation of Nike. I... I uh, and and the people running it now uh, aren't necessarily the former athlete types. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what happens in the uh, years to come, and and whether they will still operate the way that they did when Knight had more of a direct direct control of it. He's he's now in his 80s, so I think he spends most of his time now more as a philanthropist than as a day-to-day, -day, you know, hands-on business person. Steve Bentz, Scott Bedbury, Matt Kaspari, and Ken Go. I'm Rod Little and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. Cristiano Ronaldo, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, Serena Williams, and in previous eras, Andrea Gassi, Carl Lewis, Sebastian Coe. The list is extensive. Knight would always prefer sportsmen and women who had a little edge in their image. One of the first was the controversial tennis player, the brat, as many knew him in the late 70s and early 80s. Yes, John McEnroe. The, the brand and the storytelling, uh, the ads, um, I think that, that piece of Nike is extremely powerful. Um, I think if you read about the early days of Nike, that, that wasn't something that Phil Knight himself really focused on. I think he was much more focused around the product innovation and the, the shoes and the runners. But I think over time, uh, he really embraced it. And I think he had a lot to do with creating this um, brand that I've heard him describe as kind of um, 
young and irreverent. Um, you can look to some of the athletes like he signed over over time. I think uh, a, a big one early on that, that really influenced a lot was signing John McEnroe, someone that you know, some people got really excited about and gravitated towards. Other ones had a very strong negative reaction to him. And, and I think you know, creating a, a brand and a culture that um, maybe not everyone likes, but um, the people who like it really are drawn to it is a, a really important insight. So I think those are a few of the things that, you know, you can look back on and history will look back on and, and say Phil Knight was, was great in all those areas. The rise and rise of Nike has not been without its controversies. Right back at the very start, Phil Knight had identified Japan as a good source of shoes because the costs were low. As business boomed, they kept costs low by using factories in places like Vietnam, China, Mexico and Indonesia. In the 1990s, stories of poor pay and working conditions in Nike factories around the globe led to mass protests on US university campuses. Knight took it personally, particularly when students at Oregon joined in, as Steve Bentz remembers. He was trying to support the University of Oregon and trying to support the students at the University of Oregon and to have the students protesting him hurt a lot. And uh, what he did, which I admire, uh, he's done this several times. He finally uh, came around to say he was going to do something about it. And so he went back to Washington, D.C. to talk. And he explained what, what was going on. And he says, I get it now. The students, they care about what Nike makes. And, and they love our shoes. But they also care about how they're made. And if uh, it's in poor working conditions, they don't want to be buying product and wearing product made by people that are suffering. And so he says uh, he, he was owning it. He was owning the problem. He didn't create it, you know, in Asia. It was the way it was. And these countries were developing. They were in the process of developing. But he said uh, he owned it and he was going to make a difference about that. And he did, you know. Uh, it took a while. You know, he started hiring people that used to protest. They became Nike employees. And they were putting together plans to, to start to change things. And so for us, it went from uh, in the mid-1990s of being uh, Nike being the poster child of doing things wrong in Asia to uh, today. You know, if you go to universities in different places, we're being held up now as the poster child of getting it right in Asia. Then in 2019, one of their coaches, Alberto Salazar, who ran an experimental training facility for Nike called the Oregon Project, was given a five-year ban for doping. In 2020, he was also placed on a temporary ban list after he was accused by a US female athlete of sexual misconduct. After he was banned, Nike closed down the Oregon Project. Here's reporter Ken Go. Most of the early executives at Nike were, were distance runners or, um, and, and a lot of them were University of Oregon distance runners. And uh, one of them was Salazar, who uh, he, he ran at Oregon after Bowerman retired. Um, Salazar also ran to win, uh, no excuses. He pushed himself beyond any normal limits. For a while, he was the top American uh, road racer, he won the New York City Marathon, uh, Boston Marathon, pushed himself so hard um, that at one point at a road race in New England, he he nearly died. His body temperature soared beyond where it, way beyond where it should, and they were packing him in ice. And they they brought a priest in to to give him last rites. At one point in the late 
90s, uh, he became quite distressed with what had happened to American distance running. The Africans had sort of taken over the sport. Um, the U.S. wasn't really competitive. And he thought uh, that was an intolerable situation, and he wanted to fix it. And so uh, he went to Knight and said, um, we should use uh, Nike's money to fund this and create a group of runners that can be internationally competitive. And Knight bought the vision, and, and that's sort of how the Nike Oregon project got started with, with Salazar as the coach and sort of the, this mad genius who was going to use every uh, scientific uh, tool he could use and, and all the money that Nike could give him to, to make U.S. distance running competitive again. The Eastern African runners were training at high altitude, and he wanted to duplicate that. One of his early projects was to build what he called an altitude house in Portland, where they they hermetically sealed it and then made the the air in the house the same as uh, high altitude. So people were breathing high altitude. And when they weren't in the house, they would sleep in altitude tents, which again simulated, say, being at 7,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 feet to the science behind that is your body compensates then by making the, the red blood cells more efficient at transporting and getting oxygen to your uh, muscles. And it makes you more efficient at, at using oxygen, which is an advantage at, uh, as a distance runner. A lot of his methods were successful, but he, he also wasn't adverse to using drugs. Um, it's my view that he, he tried to stay within the rules, but he also pushed the envelope in his use of drugs. And I think his approach was if it's not specifically illegal, then it's legal. And a lot of other uh, people in the sport uh, looked at that with suspicion. They wanted to stay well back from the line because they didn't want to inadvertently step over it. He admitted to doing what they what he eventually was sanctioned for. His defense was he thought it was legal and that he had been told by a World Anti-Doping Agency person that it was legal, but it wasn't. So I guess Ultimately, he, he was sanctioned for breaking the rules. Nike has a, they call it the campus. It's an industrial park, is, um, and they have a number of buildings on the campus, and they're all named after athletes with a Nike connection. And one of the buildings was named for him. I, I think it's been renamed since, but, it you know, that Alberto Salazar had his own building. So did Lance Armstrong, by the way, um, and that one's been renamed too. The association with Salazar was damaging for Nike. Nike has had a lot of missed opportunities when it comes to being a cultural leader in, you know, part of an effort to expand opportunities for girls and women in sport. Victoria Jackson thinks that the company let itself down by not giving enough support to women in sport. Thanks to really brave Nike-sponsored, formerly Nike-sponsored athletes, Alicia Montano, Allison Felix, Kara Goucher and Lauren Fleshman, we learned that women who got pregnant were penalized by Nike. Um, Kara Goucher, for example, um, was asked to continue to work for Nike by doing ad campaigns and doing media interviews during her pregnancy, but Nike suspended her payments on her contracts until she started racing again. Um, Alicia Montano, Allison Felix talked about how they got reductions in their contracts coming off their pregnancies. Um, and so this is obviously an example of gender discrimination because men can't get pregnant and they're not experiencing the same things in their contracts. These are contracts designed for men athletes and then you know just kind of slapped on to women athletes without recognizing the value of supporting women through pregnancy and postpartum. That could have been 
a marketing coup that could have been, um, you know, a, a new technological innovation if Nike had gone all in with developing maternity athletic apparel and maybe even a shoe line since women's feet change during pregnancy. So not just harming the athletes they sponsor, but a missed opportunity to tap into literally half the population. So a mixed track record for sure. I was on a flight to Tenerife the other week and I was the only male on the plane wearing adult shoes. I know because I did an inventory. Everyone else was in what looked like brand new trainers, more often than not Nike. Most were wearing shorts too. In other words, it was like a class outing for five-year-olds. But still, you cannot take away from Phil Knight the brilliance of that initial observation that Japanese training shoes could capture the market from the Germans. And then the canniness, much of which was down to supremely clever branding, that made the rest of us think that we had the right to wear sports attire when the most strenuous activity we've ever done is open the fridge for another tinny. Phil Knight is now, like his dad, a conservative Republican, and I suppose would insist that what some see as an exploitation of labour, the sweatshop economy, was merely a classical expression of capitalism. Either way, he has been clever, lucky and ruthless in equal measure, which is why he has more than 40 billion US dollars in the bank, and we sadly do not. I'm Rod Biddle and this is Global Disruptors, a perfectly normal production for Disrupt Radio Australia. Disrupt Radio, tune in to opportunity.